right, welcome back to Journey Through Justice, a trial of Kyler Youth's podcast. We are here today with your daily update for day number two in court. Today was full of witness testimony. Uh, a lot of the witnesses dealt with Kara and Kyler's relationship, as well as the investigation. The jurors heard from 15 witnesses today, so quite a lot of information to take in. I am Haley Godburn, and I am joined by our reporters who were there today, Andres Gutierrez and Caitlin Canute. So Caitlin, I wanna start with you today. You were in the courtroom again. Um, can you kind of talk about what you saw and heard today? Yeah, uh, well today, again, uh, Kyler used very well-dressed, very different from the Kyler used we saw early on in the investigation over the years. Remember he had kind of that punk metal band persona and again, uh, very different Kyler used in court, very well-dressed, a sport coat over a crew neck shirt, you know, very night, nice and neat uh, trimmed hair, haircut. Um, and once again today, he was he was taking notes. He was nodding to his attorneys, conferring with them. The families, meanwhile, of both Kara Kopetsky and Jessica Runyons were in the courtroom. It's important to note that because of uh, COVID restrictions, they're limited to just two rows. But in the media room where Andres was for, for most of the day, um, he was also in there with, with uh, plenty of other family members. There was kind of an overflow room and so having been in both locations, the family inside the courtroom pretty reserved, but I think uh, we got much more reaction in the separate overflow room as this testimony was going on today, especially when the defense would cross-examine some of these witnesses and kind of attack their credibility or question whether they really saw or heard what they said they did. Um, definitely some reaction from family members, but that's kind of what, what I witnessed from inside the courtroom today. Yeah, that was something I noticed yesterday, too, in the media workroom, is there, quite a, there were quite a few members of what seemed to be um, family and friends. Caitlin, were you, in, were you in the courtroom at all, or the media workroom at all today? I was. I actually was in both locations. And so, you know, the, uh, the family and friends in that location were a little more boisterous, or perhaps, you know, there were more rumblings. Um, that's something that, was, that, I, that I really noticed today, and Andres and I were talking about this um, kind of in some of the breaks, that the defense really seemed to be going after these witnesses. And so we heard witness after witness talk about the relationship between Kyler and Kara and talk about these allegations of abuse and that he was jealous and he was possessive and he put his hands on her um, prior to her disappearance. And time and time again, upon cross-examination, the defense would say, well, did you say anything? Did you talk to her parents? Did you go to police? And in a very accusatory tone, um, which is interesting, you know, I mean, very, very harsh, very accusatory. And, and I can't help but wonder if they are trying to set up the defense that perhaps the reason why some of these individuals didn't go forward to police with some of these stories sooner um, was because maybe over the years, their perceptions or their recollections were colored by the fact that police really zeroed in on Kyler and, and only Kyler. And again, that's speculation, but that seems to be kind of the approach the defense is taking. Well, if this happened, why didn't you say anything? Why didn't you go to police? Did you go to police? And they did that time and time again, but I don't think that approach sat well with the crowd that was gathered there today. Yeah, I would agree with that, Caitlin. Um, Andres, I wanna bring you in. Um, you've been following this case for years, and uh, I was just wondering, second day of trial, first day of really witness testimony that we've heard, um, what, what kind of stood out to you today? Well, for me, it really was that reaction that Caitlin was talking about, being there with the rest of the family members, uh, kind of the extended family. And 
a lot of them were talking about how they were just teenagers, right? High school juniors and seniors at the time that they really weren't thinking that this is something that they could just take to law enforcement, right? Uh, because that was something that they kept asking. The defense kept saying, well, why didn't you go to police and report it? And it's one, one of the witnesses said, well, uh, one of Kyler's friends said that he essentially was a kid who was a, you know, part of a death metal band, was a skater, was a self-described pothead, right? That on the day that this disappearance occurred, that he had gone out to buy some marijuana and that when cops came around asking about his timeline that day, he wasn't gonna willingly divulge that information until eventually that would come up later. Uh, and so, we just have to remember that a lot of these people back in the day were just, you know, teenagers who just may have not understood the gravity of the situation at the time. Right. And something I kept hearing over and over again as I, as I was listening was there was a lot of people who were saying, I don't remember, I don't recall. And, the, you know, 2007 was 14 years ago. And so I'm wondering what your guys' thoughts might be on that. And kind of how just the length of time this case has spanned could affect the outcome. Yeah, the defense team is going to try to use that to their advantage. In one instance, you had a gentleman who uh, was saying that his memory for some reason got better over time uh, because he they were trying to attack his credibility, saying that what he was saying today in court on that witness stand was not matching with what he had told them during the deposition. They even presented a copy, a transcript, of the deposition and he just said, well, you know what, with time my memory has gotten better. But real, I, I do believe that here the defense moving forward is going to try to use the, the, again, the year, the decades that it's taken for the case to get to this point to their advantage. I think so too. I think that is one way they will try to poke holes in the state's argument, but you have to remember that it can work, it can work against both sides. And one thing that the uh, prosecution has in their favor, they have these confessions, they have these statements that have been preserved through police police reports. So they have testimony, sworn testimony that they've taken. And so even though the defense will try to say to these witnesses on the stand, well, how can you be sure? And even if they say, I don't remember, they still have some elements that are in writing that, that go back you know, closer to when Kara first disappeared and when Jessica Runyon's disappeared. So I, I think that will work in the prosecution's favor for the defense. Eventually, once we get to their witnesses, they're going to start talking about other possible alibis. Um, and just as some of the prosecution's witnesses have said, I don't remember, I don't recall because it was so long ago, you know, the defense will face that too with their witnesses. So it, it really can work against both sides. So the very first witness today was Rhonda Beckford, Kara's mom. And Andres, I know you were watching that. And can you talk a little bit about um, her testimony and kind of the emotion behind it? Yeah, it's obviously so heartbreaking to hear from her. Um, you know, it's something that she has lived with so many years. And today she had the opportunity of kind of beginning, you know, this trial, right? This is, she was the first witness to go up there and she just described, you know, kind of Kara and where she was in life, uh, you know, what it was like to be, you know, how that day unfolded, uh, but also how the family had kind of warned her that they really didn't like Kyler and, you know, uh, when they first started go going out, so kind of the dynamic there in the relationship and uh, how they didn't just 
have a good feeling about this guy. Um, and then eventually, uh, after she disappeared, the mom went into the bedroom and found this poem uh, that Kara had written about this, uh, how, how essentially about this abuse and uh, how it, it really did get, uh, it really did stir got a lot of emotions, uh, heartbreaking emotions uh, among the crowd there uh, when she was reading that up on the stand today. Either one of you, did either of you hear anything today that surprised you or hear anything that maybe we didn't know before or anything else that kind of stood out to you? I don't, I don't know about Andres, but I know Amy Clark's testimony really struck me today. So she is, uh, she was a friend of Cara's and she's the one who testified that two weeks before Cara disappeared, Cara was over at Amy's house on a Saturday afternoon and they had been discussing him. And, and Amy knew that, you know, allegedly Cara, Cara was having these relationship issues with Yust and Yust kept calling. She said 20 plus times he called and finally Kara agreed to go meet him. And so Kyler came to this friend's house, Amy's house, picked up Kara. They left, came back. And according to witness Amy, she said when Kara got back, she had a fat, bloody lip and she had marks, bruises around her neck where she said Kyler had choked her. And so she told this story on the witness stand of how Kara was upset and went to the bathroom trying to clean herself up. And then Kyler continued to call her phone another 20 plus times. And eventually Amy said she answered Kara's phone and, and said something to him about how could you put your hands on her? And that's when she said to the courtroom today that Kyler said, if I can't have her, no one can. So that was, that was a pretty powerful line right there to hear that. What's interesting after that, um, during cross-examination, the defense really was questioning why that story didn't appear in Amy's early police report. So Amy was actually the first friend to go to Belton police that May 4th when Cara disappeared 2007. And she's the one who said, hey, my friend's missing. No one has seen or heard from her. And she, she said on the stand, she did it because she just had a bad feeling. Knowing what had happened prior, she had a bad feeling when no one could get a hold of Cara. But in that initial police report, it didn't say anything about this previous fight the two allegedly had. There was another uh, police interview that didn't say anything about this alleged fight the two had had. Um, and then maybe even Andres might remember a third FBI interview that that report didn't list that. And so the defense said, well, if you're saying this happened, why wouldn't you tell police and why didn't this appear in these reports? And Amy said, I don't know. I did tell them every time I talked to police, I told them that story every time. So that is setting up. We, we've heard this a couple of times. We also heard that today where the initial police report said that they had talked to Cara's mom and Cara that first day when Cara was missing said she's probably with Kyler. They're at band practice. She's not being held against her will. And Cara's mom said, I never said that. I did not say that. So this is twice today that we've had disputes from the state's own witnesses who are contradicting um, some of what, what was in those early police reports. Uh, so very interesting, a lot of twists and turns already. That one line, Caitlin, about if uh, I can't have you, nobody else can, that did, that line was kind of a, a soundbite that a lot of people used yesterday uh, during the opening statements from the prosecution. They used that, that line. And, and along with that, as they laid out their, their kind of during opening statement, they laid out kind of what this case would go like. Well, the defense team is starting to lay out that groundwork that they talked about yesterday in the sense that they're saying that there was that this investigation was mishandled from the get-go, right? And so you had a former uh, Belton police officer, who's now a KCPD officer, up on the stand today, Officer Rittenhouse, 
and he was tasked with the he had to go to Quick Trip, uh, where he met up with uh, Jim Beckford, uh, the dad, the stepdad of uh, Kara, and they were said, well, this is where she possibly could have someone may have seen her here. There may be security footage. Well, it sounds like the officer never followed up with that Quick Trip uh, in collecting that security footage, and so that there's no. War, you know, there's no P, uh, video footage out there of uh, that if Kara had ever been at that store. But that's so that's one thing they pointed out. The other one was the detective who took who spoke to Kyler two days after the disappearance, and uh, Kyler gave his version of events. And it sounds like the the detective said that he only checked uh, verified that alibi with Alfred Use Kyler's grandfather, and that was pretty much it. Never went to the nursing home or the uh, uh, rehab facility in South Kansas City, where he allegedly was, to do more follow-ups there. And so uh, the defense starting kind of to lay out that groundwork that there were supposedly missteps throughout this investigation uh, on behalf of their client. Right. So I think today we're kind of getting a clearer picture of what their arguments are going to look like throughout the trial. The prosecution seems to be focusing on um, Kopetsky and Yus's relationship and how um, many people said it was abusive and the defense um, is laying the groundwork to poke holes, all kinds of holes in the investigation. Mm -hmm. So with that, we'll wrap up for today. I want to remind our listeners that they can find this episode, all of our other previous episodes and more details about what went down in court today at kshb.com slash use trial. Um, and Caitlin and Andres, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.